Each episode of UX Podcast requires about 10 hours of work by myself, James, and our producer, Remy, together with other related costs like hosting equipment and so on. This puts the production cost of each show in excess of 1,000 euros. So help support UX Podcast and the UX community by contributing financially to keep the show running. Visit uxpodcast.com support and contribute as much as you can. UX Podcast Episode 227. You're listening to UX Podcast, coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. Helping the UX community explore ideas and share knowledge since 2011. We are your hosts, Pat Axbom and James Royal Lawson. With listeners in 190 countries from Latvia to Iceland. From time to time, we bring you a repeat show. This is an episode from our extensive back catalogue, resurfacing some of the ideas and thoughts from the past that we believe are still relevant and well worth revisiting. And today, we are reposting episode 106, a show from back in 2015. This is our interview with uh, Lori Cavallucci and Amy Silvers, where we learn all about imposter syndrome and how to deal with it. Imposter syndrome. Uh, Let us know a a bit more about what made you want to do that talk at the IA Summit and what the type of responses you got from that. For me, it's something that I've grappled with for years. It's just been something um, I never knew what it was until I started reading about it. And I'm like, wow, that's me. There's actually something for what I've been experiencing. And Amy and I have talked a lot about it over the years. Um, She happens to have been, she she cringes when I say this, but she happens to have been my, my mentor who helped push me. I needed someone to push me. I was holding myself back. And um, so it's just, it's, it started off basically as a self-study, like anything in psychology. It's me search. So it's, um, the interest came from my own um, difficulties uh, suffering with it through the years. Yeah, I think Lori and I were, had both been going through some career bumps and I had maybe done a little bit more uh, applying for jobs than she had because she had been a freelancer for a long time, and she was she was sort of looking around for things to apply to, but she kept saying things like, you know, well, I don't have, I don't, ha- I haven't used Axure and they want Axure, or I don't use, you know, this software tool and they want it, and I right. kept telling her, you know, nobody meets all of the qualifications for a job. Just push yourself and go ahead and apply for things, even if they're a little above your level. And we talked about how much we both felt like frauds, like complete frauds, um, doing that mm. kind of thing. Like we weren't mm. really qualified to to be applying for any UX jobs in spite of both having at that point, you know, several years experience at least in the field. And it, it kind of grew from there. Exactly. Actually, James was the one, you've been talking to me, James, about doing this show about imposter syndrome for over a year now, I think. Oh, yeah, so it's probably close to two years. But even even before you mentioned it to me the first time, uh, I actually didn't know there was a name for it. Because when you described it, I realized, oh, my God, I feel that all the time. I didn't know there was a name for it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I remember, I mean, occasionally you get those 
uh, for me anyway, occasionally you get those moments where people come out and, mm-hmm. and, and say, I remember one situation when I was working at a client's and we were having a, a conversation um, near the coffee machine and, and somebody just kind of brought up the fact that they were feeling nervous about doing a particular task in, in this project. And, and the conversation then um, you know, snowballed pretty quickly. And, and everyone, there was about four of, I think it was four of us around this coffee machine, all of us basically ended up saying to each other, well, yeah. you know, I think we all feel like that a lot of the time. Um, feel like we're, we're, we, we're not good enough to do these jobs or um, yeah, not qualified to do them or we're not going to be able to deliver what's expected of us. Mm. Um, and you get those moments where you realise that uh, well, I think probably everyone has their moments of, of feeling like an imposter and a fraud. Yeah. So, so what's what's really going on here? I mean, is this special for the field of UX? Because it seems like the UX, especially, is a field where there are so many new things, and like you were saying there, that there are so many tools we need to know about. There's so many things. Do I know about search engine optimization? Do I know about this and that? Analytics as well. Do I need to care about that? How much do I actually need to know to be a good UX designer? And that sort of is, of course, contributes to that feeling of being an imposter, not having you know that holistic view of just everything that you need to know about. But has imposter syndrome been around always? And is it just something we've been afraid to talk about? Yeah, I, we can talk a little bit about the um, origin of the term. I'll let Laurie cover that. And it was originally uh, identified as a phenomenon among women in academia. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. PhDs, tenured professors who at some fundamental level just doubted that they were even intelligent, much less qualified to do the work they were doing. But I think that was mostly putting a name to something that that certainly every professional experiences um, and probably every human experiences or most humans experience. It's actually the ones who don't experience it that you have to worry about. Uh, And there's a name for that syndrome too. Uh, It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect, people who actually overestimate their qualifications uh, and their own intelligence. But um, but imposter syndrome, I think, is very common among people who are high achieving. Um, I can talk a little bit about whether it's a, it, whether it's particularly prevalent in UX and and hypothesize about why. Um, but I'll let Laurie give a little of the background on on the original the origin of the syndrome and the naming of it. It was first diagnosed in high achieving women. Um, by two women. They realize that it's something that high-achieving women in this university were feeling, and they did the study. Now, what we know now is that it's not just women that suffer from it. It's mm-hmm. women and men. It's, um, it tends to be people who, who really are high achievers and, and have high expectations of themselves and have achieved a lot that tend to feel it the most. And um, this was in the late 70s, and that was the first diagnosis, and it was called imposter phenomenon. And it, oh. it really was, um, it wasn't well known, it wasn't publicized. And I think um, as Amy and I were exploring this, we found so many articles, people were just starting to come out about it um, and talk about it because it's something that they had been feeling, and they realized that it's not just them, it's other people as well. 
Yeah, uh, and we actually did a survey, a non-scientific survey, um, of people in the UX community and the percentages of, of people who agreed with all or part of the statements that we posed um, about feeling like an imposter in particular situations, um, not only feeling like you're not qualified, but also feeling like you're going to be discovered at any minute. Uh, you're yeah. going to fall on your face and everyone is going to figure out, you know, what th that you've been getting away with um, faking it all this time. Uh, and we discovered that, that almost everybody, it was it's 70 and 80 percent on almost all the um, hmm. the responses uh, agreed with the statements. And yeah, I that's, that's a huge percentage. Yeah, it was, it was <laughs> staggering. Um and it, it almost made me feel like, you know, if if everyone has imposter syndrome, how important is it? Like, is it something we should just sort of acknowledge and, and get on with our lives and um, just sort of try to ignore it as best we can? But I think there are also there are things that we can do to actively combat it that are probably a little healthier. But it does, it makes you wonder a little, you know, if, if everybody has it, is it even really a syndrome? Or is it, ah, right, yeah. is it just part of, of being human, part of being a, a relatively successful human? But I do think, I think UX poses kind of some unique um, challenges for people who are prone to feeling like imposters because not only do we have all these different skills that we're expected to have, but nobody defines what that skill set is in the same way. No two people, much less uh, two companies or two hiring managers, define it in anything like the same way. And we have all these sort of standards that we're held to all the time, but the standards keep shifting and they're nebulous and there's no way to say, like in the talk, I give the example of um, architecture, physical architecture. I can look at a building that Frank Gehry designed and say, that's a Frank Gehry building, but I can't look at Frank Gehry's website and say, oh, so-and-so designed that website or, you know, right. mm his digital presence or whatever i can't i can't point to anything there because there aren't really standards or objective criteria um there we don't share our work that actively a lot of the time so it's just kind of um nebulous and again shifting all the time i remember uh I think it's the guy actually who's behind the Future of Web Design conference series who posted three or four years ago, he tweeted about UX design being a bullshit job title, UX designer. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay then, guess I'll pack up my things and go home because mm -hmm. you know my job yeah. is bullshit. Um, and we get stuff like that all the time. You know, you have to know how to code. You should never code. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> all this stuff telling us how we should be. And and if you're not doing this, you're not really a UX designer. And that makes it very hard to feel any sort of sense that you you have mastery over your, your skills, over your job. Exactly. I'll, I'll throw in as well the, the, the um, oh, theory that um, with the work we do, 
every single project, every single thing we end up doing is unique. So, so even though we we have similarities in some of the the, the tasks, you, you know, you you might do a certain aspect of a task, a wireframe, or you might do an interview or something. Use the, a research, the, yeah, use a research tracking test. <laughs> yeah, you might do certain parts of the process yeah. again and again. But when it comes to the the whole thing, the whole process, you know, every company you work with is different, every website is different, every app. So, so you're you're going into new territory as a creative person every single time. Right. 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 I, I also feel that so many of us have come from other fields that that, that contributes to it. So, mm. you know, Amy and I both came from different fields into UX because there wasn't UX when we, when we were studying in school. And mm. I, I wonder, like, I think that this next generation that's coming up, there's more and more people that, I'm, that are starting to come into jobs where I am that have, they have degrees in this. So I just wonder if they're going to be experiencing it to the same level that we do. And the, and the profession will be more defined whether it's, it's still vague or not. Um, I think there'll be, they'll, there will have been enough people doing it, doing something resembling it for long enough that, that it'll be a little more accepted and a little more generalized to where people can confidently say, yes, what I'm doing is UX design. And maybe if we're lucky, there'll be fewer people saying, oh, no, that's not UX design. This is UX design. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And maybe even um, even management might um, have a better understanding of what you're doing. So um, the, the, the hippos and, and, and so forth higher up in the company won't be telling you, no, can't you make it blue? Yeah. Or, um, yeah. Right. I, I also think, like, there's... For what I've done, I do the same work pretty much in every company. Again, there's different nuances, mm. but my title has been different everywhere I go, but I'm still doing the same work. So I think that also contributes to it because it's like, you know, right now I'm, I'm senior lead interaction designer, but, you know, I'm doing UX work and I'm in the UX department, but that's just what our title is. You know, before I was senior user experience designer, I've, you know, it's, um, I've been lead IA, information architect it's so it but again i'm doing the same work um it's just with a different title and i don't think you know that that helps because it's it's harder for us to define who we are the field is changing so fast all the time and if you're doing photoshop you're doing it wrong if you're not sketching <laughs> on, with pen on paper you're doing it wrong right so you're always doing it wrong whatever yes. you do. yeah <laughs> and to to be honest i actually was at a company that told me i was sketching wrong I didn't know you put sketch on. <laughs> oh, excellent. Wow. They had standards for sketching. It was always my thought process. Yeah. Standards for sketching. Oh, that's amazing. Needless to say, that job didn't work out very well. No, oh, that sounds probably a good move to move on for that one. <laughs> so I was listening to the No Agenda podcast or a snippet of it the other day, and they were talking about the self-esteem movement which I, I thought coupled with this uh, uh, quite well. Uh, and they were talking about Little League and uh, how everybody gets a medal right. as kids, uh, even if they come in last. Everybody gets medals. I mean, it's the same in Sweden. Mm. I know when my, my boys play soccer, and when they are ever, ever playing a cup or something, they're, everybody gets medals. Oh, yeah. And they're always looking forward mm-hmm. to it. Yeah, they queue up for the medals. And so what happens is everybody th- thinks that they're the best because they're always getting these medals or these trophies. And so... Uh, the theory then was that once you get into actually working life, you realize, oh, I'm not the best. I don't know anything. So we're not preparing our children even 
for getting out there into the real world. We're giving them all this self-confidence <laughs> and self-esteem, which everybody thinks, yeah, that's really good. But in the end, they haven't really felt that feeling of trying to achieve and get that medal or trophy by doing really, really well. But I, I think when you get to a certain level that that changes. Um, I do have kids. I have two teen boys, a 16 and a 17-year-old. My si mm -hmm. I happen to be um, at Junior Olympics right now with my 16-year-old. But there's been years he's had really crappy throws and just, you know, he qualified but then didn't make it here. and mm -hmm. Or he made it, but he just didn't um, throw far enough to, to medal. And so these kids, they, they know <laughs> to, to be cliche the agony of defeat you know there was one of his teammates yesterday who's a long jumper every jump he fouled um oh. he didn't even get yeah. to really compete and so there he's not going home with a medal so i think yeah. again um you know when you're in the the non-competitive team sports that they tend to give all medals but when the other kids tend to move out of that and it's a great lesson because they're competing with kids who are of the same ilk and quality and caliber and so they know they learn that they're up against the same competition as they are they're just as good and they may walk away with nothing so again, it's, it's yeah. I mean, it's just I, I agree. I think that we we do we try very hard to make everybody feel good. Yeah, <laughs> but we've we've so we've got, we've got two sides to this. So you've got the um, um, the feeling the, the feeling of confidence that you actually are capable of of doing something. Mm -hmm. um, then there's the 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 flip side or compliment to it is that it's okay to fail. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and I suppose mm. both of those contribute to um, to the feeling of, of of imposter syndrome. Absolutely. Um, you go in sort of feeling like, yeah, I can do this. I'm trained for this. I know what I'm doing. And then the for whatever reason, possibly beyond your control, the project fails, or more commonly, at least for me, your designs aren't accepted for whatever reason, you need to go back mm. and change them. And it's not generally a personal thing. In fact, it's almost never a personal thing. Mm. Um, but it leaves you, you could almost call it imposter confusion, um, because mm. it leaves you in this state where you think, well, what, what should I be taking away from this? Should I be taking away from this that I'm incompetent or that I'm good, but I still have more to learn. And that also contributes to that feeling of sort of, I don't know what I'm doing. I think it all, it all kind of boils down to a, a pervasive sense of, I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, for me, one of the nice things, honestly, about getting older, uh, Lori and I are the same age, um, we're both in our early 50s, let's say, and uh, for me, one of the nicest things about getting older is is feeling better about not knowing everything and realizing yeah, mm -hmm. that you don't know everything and that you're never going to know everything and that it's it's okay not to know everything. But I think for younger people, it's very hard to get these kind of mixed messages. Yes, I got the medals in Little League. And I do find, you know, there are a lot of stereotypes about millennials. Um, I work with a lot of millennials, and what I find with them is, yes, they're very confident. They don't um, suffer from the kind of self-doubt that I did when I was their age. But they're not arrogant about it. 
Um, mm. And they do recognize that they don't know everything. Um, and they get, if for some reason they don't recognize that, they get regular life lessons in it and certainly <laughs> regular work lessons in it. And they learn from that and they grow from that. So in a way that gives me hope, um, you know, that they'll be confronted with less of this. But I also see them saying, you know, that they have imposter syndrome too. Mm. Uh, I quote one of my coworkers when we give the talk. He's just the smartest guy. He's young and he's very, he comes off as very confident, very professional. He's spoken at conferences now, even though he's only been in the field for a few years. Um, very multi-talented, you know, he's, he's a good visual designer, but he's also an ace coder. And um, when I was first telling him about the talk, he had never heard of imposter syndrome, so I explained mm -hmm. it to him. And he said, oh, I feel like that every day. Yeah. So, exactly. you know, I still see this happening, even mm -hmm. with this more confident and uh, kind of more brash younger generation, which is unfortunate. So probably we should be talking about it more, because I can really relate to that, that as, as I grow older, that I, I can really accept that I don't know everything. Uh, and I'm thinking that when I approach or when I talk to more junior UX designers, that I should probably be careful about how I actually articulate problems, perhaps in solutions, in that I realize that some things are not research-based, but something that they just happen to think of that was fun, or they they brought in something from another project, but it was it didn't fit as well in, in this project. And when you say stuff like that, that can make them very much feel, of course, like imposters. They realize, oh my God, I, I'm, I'm not basing this on the right data. Uh, but at the same time, recognize that we don't have the data, so maybe we are doing it in the right way as best we can anyway. Right, right. I, I also think company culture plays a part. I think there are companies where like I, I've been scared to say I don't know. Like I, I don't know, and I want to say it, but you, you can't say that. Mm. And then the best managers and the best companies basically allow you to try things and fail, and and know that you know they're there and nothing's going to happen to you, and that you still know what you know. So again, it, it has a lot to do with where you are and what what the feeling is there. And also, uh, for me, I mean, me and Pear are both um, are both consultants, so we're we're paid to know. Exactly. So, right. so, so right. for us, right. even though it's not a culture thing, you know, it's 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 it can be very difficult for us to sit in a situation and go, well, actually, I have no idea, or I I I, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. So uh, what so what are we paying you for? Yeah. Well, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But and I I used to go through the same thing when I was independent, um, feeling mm -hmm. like they they are looking to me to be that knowledge base. But I also learned to say I don't know, but I can find out. And that, yeah. that seemed to help because they appreciated the honesty that I wasn't trying to fake it and um, respected me more. And I always did. You know, there's so many other experts that I can lean on and get that information from. Yeah, yeah. And, but that's a cultural thing, too. There are places mm -hmm. where you absolutely can't get away with that. Yes, <laughs> exactly. I was going to say that. I mean, I, I've, some of my clients, I have no problem whatsoever saying, I actually have no idea, but I'll find out or I'll get back to you. Well, that's a complex issue. I'll need to, I can't just give you a live answer. But with other clients, that would feel more awkward. What is, what is some good advice of how we, can, how we can go about dealing with this feeling when, we, when it bubbles up or when we notice it in, um, in a coworker? 
the first step is admitting, you know, telling people, being honest and open, saying this is something I suffer from and that, you know, I, I feel like I have imposter syndrome um, some of the time, a lot of the time. And, and, you know, it's, you'll see it come up when there are new things coming along the, on the pike. It's, I also, um, I express in the talk and the workshop that basically, um, putting yourself out there uh, and your work and getting it critiqued and basically, you know, um, realizing it's not you. Like we all tend to personalize this and think that they're critiquing us and they're criticizing us. But it's actually the work and, and just separating ourselves from it and moving beyond that because it's, it's collaboration and getting that feedback. It just makes us better and helps us to learn more. Um, you know, we all have achievements, we all have awards, uh, you know, emails acknowledging hard work, printing those out, hanging them up, um, anything that acknowledges the work we do so we can rely on that when we're feeling most like imposters, uh, mentors, um, getting a mentor um, really helps because they push you and they're there to back you up and you feel like you have someone to lean on. And then um, mentoring others who have this. And there's also a way to look at the positive side uh, of imposter syndrome, to look at it as a chance to see things with a fresh eye. Um, you know, we talk a lot, I think it's almost a buzzword now, we talk about the beginner's mindset, the beginner's mind, approaching a project with the beginner's mind. So if you really feel new at something or you really feel like you don't get something, that's a great opportunity to learn about it and open your mind to it and um, explore it. And then you have, you know, then you've conquered that and you've got it in, in your tool belt for next time. It's another, another thing that you can add to your set of skills, your collection of skills. The fact that our work does change so much and is a little bit different on every project we do although it can reinforce imposter syndrome, it's also one of the things that's really cool about the work we do, right? It's never boring yeah. or very yeah. rarely boring, <laughs> unlike most people's jobs. So that's, that's a positive thing. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, yeah, no. I think most people hate their, or a lot, of, an awful lot of people hate their jobs. And yes, yeah. most people in UX do not hate their jobs. They're doing it because they love their jobs. Uh, and because it is exciting and changing and there's always more to learn. Um, so if you approach it that way rather than as, oh God, I don't know this, I'm an idiot. It, sometimes it is just a matter of kind of which recording you play in your head. Is it the recording that says, oh God, I know nothing, everybody else knows this and I don't know anything about it and, and they're all going to find out and I'm going to fail? Or... Is it the, the recording that says, you know how to approach something new, you know how to learn about new things, remember that time when you learned about such and such, um, approach this like that and it'll be fun. You know, and that's oversimplifying to an enormous degree. But, but you do have some control over, over, over the voices in your head uh, and what they're telling you. Mm. So that's a way to deal with it. But also, I think, accepting that it is that you're always going to feel some degree of it whenever you're confronted with something especially challenging or just something very new. Um, 
and that it's okay. You know, other yeah. people feel it too. Just remind yourself. I always like to remind myself, like I um, sit in a room with a bunch of my coworkers and sometimes I'll be completely focused on something and I'll hear them all laughing. And because I'm a paranoid person, I'll think, oh God, they're laughing at me. And of course they're not laughing at me. They're not even thinking about me. They're thinking about themselves. And that's true for most people in most situations. So when you're sitting in a meeting presenting your designs, you know, um, the other members of the team are thinking, you know, maybe the product manager is thinking, oh, God, I hope I'm not going to sound too stupid if I ask this question about what that button does. Or the other designer is thinking, oh, boy, you know, that was my idea. I hope it doesn't bomb. People are focused on themselves. They're not focused on you. And that can really help. Recognizing that can really help deal with imposter syndrome also. As we compare ourselves to everybody, everybody else compares themselves to people too, no matter what level they are. We all do that with everything, but I think it tends to um, affect us. So we have to remember that we're all human and everyone's doing the same thing. Is there any way that we can we can put um, um, imposter syndrome to, to a positive use when it when it comes up? So instead of just trying to fight it back and put it back in its box, can we actually spin it, spin off it and, and, and put it to some good use? There's a cycle where we achieve and it creates more feelings of imposter syndrome. So we work harder to achieve it. So it's it's a cycle, but it's it's maybe an overachiever mindset, but it's we all tend to work really hard. And so I, you know, it's I view it as something I have, just like um, I have brown eyes or I'm left-handed. Um, it's, it's just something that's part of me that's never going to go away. It comes in waves. You know, there are times where I really feel like an imposter and there's times where I'm feeling more confident. And I think that, that it's that way for everybody. And I also think it's a way, you know, you can use it as a way to keep yourself on your toes. Like, particularly when you've been in the field for a while, you can get sort of lazy in your habits and just rely on things that you've done before um, or treat, treat things as, you know, just turn to the obvious solution, um, rely too heavily on design patterns and not really think things through. If you're a little bit humbled and you're a little bit nervous, just a little bit, not excessively, um, about how your work is going to be received. That keeps you fresh. It keeps you thinking. Um, mm. And it, it renews your energy for, for getting better at stuff, for learning more about, about your skills and improving your skills. So I do think that's one positive aspect. Yeah. So that's maybe why we have it. <laughs> it could be, yeah. yeah. Certainly yeah. part of I it. I think a lot of our listeners will be feel relieved actually listening to this podcast. I certainly am. Uh, and I, I, I think it's really, I'm, I was happy to hear that more than 80% of UXers feel this <laughs> way because that makes me feel, feel better as well. Uh, and, <laughs> and people at the most senior levels, like people I've looked up to and learned from for years um, mm. feel it absolutely. Uh, which is, it's very, there is something very comforting about that. Yeah. And reassuring. Yeah, we've actually noticed that during the years of interviewing people on UX podcast mm. that um some people are, are very, very humble. Yeah. Um humble to the point where you 
you, 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 you see that they probably are suffering from imposter syndrome, that they, they don't understand why everyone wants to talk to them and yeah, exactly. wants to interview them for a podcast. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Everybody's just human in the end. Exactly. Yeah. And, and remembering <laughs> that is, is helpful yeah. with imposter syndrome. Mm. Interesting yeah. that we have to say that to UXers. It is. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's all about the people. Well, you know, I, I think we tend to look inward somewhat. We observe people, and I think that's why. Like, we're always thinking about things. We're thinking about things outside of ourselves. We're thinking about things in, within ourselves. And that's, you know, we're looking for patterns in ourselves, too. And mm. uh, just like with anything, and I think that that's one of the reasons it, it also contributes to why so many of us have it. Excellent. Thank you guys for being on UX Podcast. Uh, I'm going to be listening back to this show. Uh, I know that. Uh, to feel better about myself <laughs> at times. <laughs> uh, so feel thanks free so much. to reach out anytime, too. Oh, yeah. And we'll be posting a link to your talk uh, at the IA Summit as well uh, oh, in our show notes. We will and uh, the link to your Twitter profile so people can get in touch with you as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. take home already from this we all need mentors oh, that, yeah i like that that's a good point We're, i was actually thinking about that yeah be a mentor and have a mentor yes uh, actually <laughs> yeah yeah it's um yeah it's a it's a two-sided coin there yeah. that um all of us all of us need someone to talk to mm. um and 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 learn learn with and learn from yeah um and we've we've talked on several shows about about the useful, usefulness of having um, a mentor. In fact, it's one of our one of our tips that we've given out during um, listener phone-ins um, mm-hmm. when asked the question, "How do you get? How do you kind of move on in UX and get started in UX?" And right. we've, we've we've generally said, you "Get yourself a, a, someone to mentor you." Mm. Um, doesn't have to be a rock star. Um, no, just anyone that you can just throw ideas to and have something come back and just mm. th- start thinking about what you do and how you feel about it. Yeah, it's it's good to talk. Um, and um, I'm so glad I have this phrase now that I can start using more and start talking about people, even in other professions, or just at dinner with other people, talk about imposter syndrome because it seems to be affecting a lot, lots and lots of people. Mm. Uh, and it seems that it's something that people tend to hide about themselves than we, when we should be talking about it more because it's more normal than not. Mm. And, and that's, I think it's interesting with the... the the high percentage of, of UXs that yeah. in their non-scientific survey said that, you know, put their hands up and said, mm. yes, suffer from um, mm. imposter syndrome. Um, but I also think it's interesting the the, um, uh, the way that it, at least originally it was um, seen as a, as a female thing. Yes. Um, but that now you understand it's actually, um, well, mm. not gender specific and that men suffer from it too. Exactly. Um, although I speculate that sometimes men are maybe a little bit less... Um, open about these things. Exactly, uh, not inclined to admit it probably yeah. as much. Yeah, because it'd be seen as a sign of weakness. Yeah, um, which we know from other um, um, studies, health studies, it comes up. I think fairly often that that men underreport. Exactly. Um, various things. Um, so it's okay, male, female. Or or anything else um, th- that you can you can put your hand up and, say and start okay. talking about it. Don't be afraid to admit when you don't know something. See it as an imp- opportunity to learn and see it as something positive that you have imposter syndrome because it actually keeps you on your toes and makes you perform well. Yeah, I think one of our previous guests um, said I actually can't remember at the moment uh, which one, but um, the whole thing about that, uh, responding with "Oh, that's an excellent question." 
I'll get back to you with um, with yeah. an answer. Yeah. So that you you know, if you're in a situation where you don't know the answer or don't mm. feel like you can answer, mm. then um, then give some praise for the question. Mm-hmm. Uh, note the question and yeah. buy yourself some time. And <laughs> because we can't know everything all the time. That it's reminds impossible. me of when I get questions when I do talks. You always always repeat the question slowly so that it gives you time to think about the answer. <laughs> yeah, buy yourself time. <laughs> we we can't possibly know everything. No, and, and, and not and not have it all. Um, fingertip ready in your head no exactly thank you for spending your time with us links and notes from this episode can be found on uxpodcast.com if you can't find them in your pod playing tool of choice and remember you can contribute to funding the show by visiting uxpodcast.com slash support recommended listening after this episode is 136 creativity with Denise Jacobs and Chris Nossel thank you per axe bomb (laughs) <laughs> yes, you need to listen to that show to I understand that, that reference. Show. I think it's that show, isn't it? Yeah, it is that show. <laughs> <laughs> Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. What do you call... A fake noodle. I don't know, James. What do you call a fake noodle? An impasta. <laughs>